Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his long musical repertoire, singer-songwriter James Taylor has an old ballad that he wrote after being inspired by a National Geographic article that he read about an old English fisherman. Only this fisherman was from the 1800s and was frozen in time at the site of his sunken ship off the North Atlantic coast. This real-life fish story got James Taylor's creative juices flowing, and so he wrote this song entitled The Frozen Man, which in his fictitious version of the story has the old fisherman getting dethawed and coming back to life over a century later to walk the earth again. Written in first person from the fisherman's point of view, the song goes, My name is William James McPhee. I was born in 1843, raised in Liverpool by the sea, but that ain't who I am. Lord have mercy, I'm the frozen man. The song verses that follow detail some of the problems you might not necessarily think of when you hear about someone coming back to life after being dead so long. It took a lot of money to start my heart, he recounts, and to peg my leg and buy my eye. Newspapers call me state-of-the-art, and the children, when they see me, cry. It goes on. I thought it would be nice just to visit my grave, see what kind of tombstone I might have. I saw my wife's and my daughter's, and it seemed so strange, both of them dead and gone from extreme old age. Finally, in frustration, like, well, a fish out of water, this fictitious, resuscitated fisherman concludes with some wisdom long in the making. He advises, see here now, when I die, make sure I'm gone. Don't leave them nothing to work on. You can raise your arm and wiggle your hand, unlike myself, and you can wave goodbye to the frozen man. Now, I said, of course, this is James Taylor's fictitious account of a man long dead, brought back to life, but it gets you wondering, doesn't it? Especially if you have ever yourself longed for eternal youth, living forever, or if you've ever dreamed of maybe putting your own brain in a cryogenic freeze to come around again down the road. What would it actually be like if you could, in fact, be a candidate for resuscitation? Would you really want to? Why or why not? There are all sorts of similar questions that we don't often think of, frankly, because we don't often, if ever encounter the phenomenon of such a resurrection happening in real life. Enter our scriptural text for this evening from Matthew's Gospel. We are at that point in our Lenten series on the signs and wonders of the Passion where we now encounter real-life multiple instances of human beings, plural, who had all died and whom we are now seeing raised back to life. Let's read our text, shall we? Matthew 27, I'm going to 
back it up to verse 50 and read through 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. Here's verse 52. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's our gospel for tonight. You may begin firing away your questions right about now. Uh, We might as well get them all out on the table and out of our system. Here, for example, are some of my questions exploding in my brain right about now. First of all, who exactly were these saints anyway? And I want names. Were they from long ago or relatively recent history with respect to the first century there? Was one maybe Joshua, for example? Or could it have been Ruth, biblical heroes with whom we would be familiar What did they have to say to the people when they went into the holy city? Surprised to see me? Did they look like zombies? Or were they, say, rewound to be people in their prime? I hope it would have been in their prime. Did they already have glorified bodies at that point to go on living forever? Or were they just refurbished? like Lazarus. Did they have to die again? Or were they later assumed up into heaven, like Elijah? Or like Jesus at his ascension? What were they doing in their graves all weekend long before they decided to enter the holy city? Were they tidying up their tombs? Folding their grave clothes, perhaps? Playing hide-and-seek with the gardener? maybe getting a little used to the sunlight. Was their resurrection all at once, or was it maybe in stages? What was their first breath like? And by the way, how did people recognize them and know they were saints? Halos? Name tags? How did people, or did they wish that they... um, themselves did not have to come back to this cursed creation? And where were they this whole interim period? How much did they themselves realize was going on? Were they, like us, also bewildered and disoriented? And on and on and on you can go. I'm sure you can think of any number of questions yourselves not on this list, which is not at all exhaustive. And I hasten to add that it's perfectly okay to ask. It's probably actually healthy to do so, and it certainly is kind of fun to speculate, isn't it? But at the end of the day, alas, it is just that, speculation. It's all speculation because... What you see in the text is what you get. It's kind of like that clerk at the store tells you, if you don't see it on the shelf, we're out. We put everything out there on the shelves. So unfortunately for inquiring minds, I don't mean to disappoint you, but what you see is what you get here. 
This here in Matthew's account is all she wrote about these mysterious saints coming back to life. Neither in Mark's nor Luke's gospel is this account included uh, surrounding the crucifixion. John's gospel has nothing about this in his passion narrative either. It's only here in Matthew and only in these two short, unexplained verses delivered in rather matter-of-fact fashion. But you know, our curiosity can also get in the way of what's deliberately missing, left out sometimes as well. You see, Matthew does indeed go on to detail a resurrection account for us, but it's not the resurrection of these saints that are supplied all those details. These raised saints remain mysteriously anonymous, period. But the one resurrection which Matthew does focus on with copious detail is that resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. What do you suppose is Matthew's intended message behind that targeted focus in his telling of the passion story? What does he deliberately seek to convey to us? There is an understood rule about proper Bible interpretation that any good seminary makes clear. It's not necessarily a fun rule, but it's a sound one. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we remain silent. Until, of course, we get to heaven and we have to bust out our long list of questions at that point, right? I know I got my list I'm bringing. Our Lutheran reformers adhered to this same principle. And even today, this principle helps ward off all sorts of funny, weird, and even heretical doctrines that could seriously cause a lot of trouble down the road. Like, for example, at the end of John's Gospel, John mentions a rumor that got started about John himself living forever. This was after Jesus was resurrected and was speaking with his disciple Peter, who looked at the other disciple, John, and asked Jesus about him. We pick it up in John 21. When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. John then adds in verse 23, So the saying spread abroad among all the brothers that this disciple, John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but, quote, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? From John 21. There are heretical groups today, interestingly enough, who believe that the disciple John never, in fact, died. And they go on to claim, of course, that John founded their particular religious group. They think they have a special authority on the basis of this claim. But the Bible does not say that John was going to keep on living indefinitely on the earth, does it? So we must always read carefully. And it is important to keep silent where Scripture is silent. 
Now, the other part of that rule, of course, is to speak where Scripture speaks. Let's not forget that side of it either. The Scriptures speak to us a lot concerning, concerning this important subject of rising from the dead, thankfully. It may not identify in our Matthew passage here who these anonymous saints were who were raised, but the fact that they were raised serves as a life sign that points to the one by whose power and might they were raised, even the Lord, the Almighty Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who raises the dead. We have seen this even earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, where Jesus raises from the dead a ruler's precious young daughter. Jesus assures the distraught father The girl is not dead, only sleeping, Matthew 9.24. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, paying for our sins and taking the sting out of death, tonight's gospel teaches us that death is thereby domesticated. Death, once a ferocious lion of an enemy itself, is reduced to a cuddly kitten of peaceful slumber for all the saints. Our passage tonight even says so itself upon careful reading. Matthew 27, 52. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, who had fallen asleep, were raised. Tonight's sign and wonder of our Lord's passion teaches us comforts us, reminds those of us who have lost loved ones and who maybe even feel the weight and weariness of life's labors winding down within ourselves that death, Christ's death for us sinners is not the end. It's only the beginning. Tonight's wondrous sign, with all its strange visual imagery of resurrected saints walking around, testifying to the power of Christ's finished work on the cross, speaks and testifies to us this word of sure victory. Christ's death is the death of death. And now death starts working backwards, transforming it from a tomb to a womb, the beginning of something beyond extraordinary indeed. Tonight's sign lays open our tombs, brothers and sisters, so that we know we may lay down our heads on the pillow tonight and confidently pray the Lord my soul to keep. And because he lives, we too shall live. It almost makes me want to shout that joyous exclamation of praise to which we sing farewell at the beginning of this Lenten season, but I'll restrain myself for now for a bigger day coming up soon. For now, just a little resurrection hope out of a Good Friday passage in the middle of Lent. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on that great day of the Lord when he calls all saints from their graves to forever be with him where he is. Amen.